Would please open your Bibles to Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 5, that will be our scripture reading this morning. Isaiah 55, 1 through 5. And I will be reading from the New King James Version. Ho, everyone who thirst, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know. And nations who do not know, know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. In the Our Daily Bread, May 18, 1994 edition... Philip Parham tells the story of a rich industrialist. He was disturbed to find a fisherman sitting lazily beside a boat. He says, why aren't you out there fishing, he asked. He says, well, because I've caught enough fish for today. He said, well, why don't you catch more fish than you need? He said, well, why in the world would I do that? He said, well, you could earn more money came the impatient reply. He said you could buy a better boat. You could go out deeper and you could catch even more fish. You could purchase nylon nets and and then catch even more fish and make more money. Soon you'd have a fleet of boats and then you'd be rich like me. The fisherman asked, he said, then what would I do? He said, well, then you could... You could sit down and enjoy life. And the fisherman said, well, what do you think I'm doing right now? As he looked out over the sea. Few people in life ever reach that level of of contentment. In fact, Benjamin Disraeli, the poet, he wrote, he said, As a rule, man's a fool. When it's hot, he wants it cool. When it's cool, he wants it hot, always wanting What is not? That's usually correct, isn't it? We want what we don't have. We live in a world full of discontented people. All we do, all we have to do is turn on the news and we see it everywhere. You look around and we particularly see it right now in our own nation. People who are unhappy. People continually striving for more things that they don't have. Not many in this world seem content and satisfied with their place in life. And and why is that? Why do people seem so dissatisfied? People seem angry and wanting something different all the time. They seem so unfulfilled. I believe the answer lies in the fact that people are looking for contentment in places and in people and in things which cannot provide for them the contentment they so desperately seek to have. In verse 2 of our text, 
we see the answer to the question in clear language. The vast majority of people seek satisfaction in their possessions because they believe it will bring the contentment that they want. They spend their lives and and their time failing to realize that the possessions in this life are very, very temporary at best. They wear out and they must be uh, replaced in this life. They don't last long. When was the last time that you bought something that lasts a lifetime? I don't know that I've ever bought anything that lasts a lifetime. And it's all going to be left behind one day. When a person moves into eternity, the houses, the cars, the boats, and whatever financial gain that can be had along the way will be left to another. The 20th century American philosopher William Earle once said, If your outgo exceeds your income, your upkeep will be your downfall. Things can never satisfy the deepest needs of the soul. Let's be clear though, God is not opposed to wealth. He is not opposed to a person having a a boatload of money. He's not opposed to that. After all, we look back over the history of his people and Job was the richest man in the east. Abraham was wealthy, 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 wealthy enough to have his own army. David was wealthy. No one was richer than Solomon. We get over into the New Testament and we see some of the wealthiest people were followers of God. We look around the world today and we see wealthy people who are Christians and and good for them. Nothing better, at least in my mind, to see a faithful Christian who's worked hard and done well and God has blessed that individual with wealth. Nothing wrong with being wealthy. and That's not what the, the intention of our passage means at all. Wealth does not make you bad. Poor does not make you good. All wealth means is you're wealthy. All poor means is you're poor. It may mean you made good decisions and it may mean you made bad decisions. That, that might be something we, that, that it tells us for sure. But it has nothing to do with character necessarily. Wealth is a great tool and it is a great blessing from God and it is nothing about which anyone should ever be ashamed if it is gained properly. Right? And so that's something we need to understand. In our passage this morning, God has issued the great invitation for eternal contentment. But we have to understand that possessions and things are not a part of that. They can be an aid in this life, but that's not a part of God's eternal invitation. That's the title of the sermon this morning, The Great Invitation. And He wants all people to respond to it. In the previous chapter, He recorded the blessings the Messiah had obtained for His people. And the invitation is extended to all people in chapter 55 of Isaiah. Now I want us to look at those components of that invitation this morning. And let's begin with the offer. That's our first point, the offer. Notice the provisions. All who realize their need of the substance of life are invited 
to come and receive freely. And there are three basic provisions that God offers in verse number 1. Now, in Palestine, where water wells were few and far between, and where water had to be purchased with money, that was an excellent and exceptional figure of speech, one of which the people would readily recognize and see as something very valuable. Water, wine, and milk. Those things were used throughout the Old Testament as figures of spiritual blessings. And then we get into the New Testament where they were used by Christ and the apostles there as well. Peter made it very plain that the prophets of old predicted salvation by grace. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Now Paul's letter to Rome declared justification before God by faith. We're not going to be able to to access the grace of God unless we do it by faith. Now here's what we need to understand. And Paul understood this, and he wrote extensively about it in the Roman letter. Salvation is by grace, and we see that in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. But it is the system of faith, when we get over to Romans, that allows us to access that grace. When Paul is talking about faith in the book of Romans, for the most part, not every time, But for the most part, when he mentions the word faith, he's talking about the system of faith. Now, when he mentions faith in Romans 10, 17, now faith comes by hearing, he's talking about personal faith. Now faith comes by hearing and hearing by the gospel, right? By hearing by the word of God. That's the gospel. Now we could put system of faith there. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But after all, when we look at the Roman letter, it's about how do we stand justified? How do we stand justified? Okay? So we're talking about the components of this invitation. We're talking about these provisions, right? He says, Paul said, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith, That's the system of faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God, Romans 5, 1 through 2. Water, wine, and milk are all figures of spiritual blessings. Right? We see that water is often used as a figure of salvation, Isaiah 12, verse 3. Wine is also often used as a a figure of joy and celebration, Psalm 104.15. Milk is often seen as nourishment, Joel 3.18. So it was not astonishing to the Jew that God would be gracious to them. They understood that God would be gracious or would show grace to them. Now what was astonishing to them is that God would grant mercy to them without them having earned it. But that was one of the purposes of the old law. To train and to teach them, not only that sin was a terrible thing and that it had to be dealt with, but that you could not earn having sin dealt with. See, you had to be justified in the sight of God through His grace. God didn't owe them anything. Through His grace, He provided a system 
to them. Now that was a very temporary system, and we're going to notice that in this passage as well. It had to be accessed through grace and faith. Now that brings us to the price. That brings us to the price. He gave provisions, but notice the price, right? The world makes you pay for everything, doesn't it? Maybe that's one reason that it's hard to find contentment in the world. You have to pay for everything. And do you notice the price is always going up? And the, and the things that you buy never last. And they're never lasting as long as they used to last. Do you know that the first light bulb that Edison made is still burning in the Smithsonian Institute? Now you go buy a light bulb and put it in your home and you're going to have to replace that thing in a matter of months. But the one Edison made is still burning in the Smithsonian Institute? Are you going to tell me they can't beat what's going on today? The price is going up. The quality is going down. Everything the world offers has a price. And it has a bigger price than what we understand. Now let's talk about the world. Let's talk about the world in the sense that we need to understand it spiritually. Sin makes a person pay dearly for any promise of contentment that it offers. And that's all the world can offer as far as contentment is concerned. The world cannot offer us spiritual Fulfillment. All it can offer is contentment through what it offers in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's all the world in and of itself can give a person as far as contentment is concerned. On the other hand, God offers every gift free. It's offered freely, right? A free gift given freely, but one has to accept freely according to God's commandments, right? Now, a gift given freely doesn't mean it doesn't have conditions attached to it. Since they're free, any person may accept it. A person that, uh, or a gift that has a price tag attached to it doesn't mean any person can accept it. Only a few people can accept it. So, when we see that any person may accept it, they are within their ability to accept it. They're within their power. Any individual can say, I'll take the gift. I'll accept the gift of salvation according to that system of faith. That's God's gift. He can give it. He's the author of salvation. There are conditions, again, attached to it and they come in the form of obedience. But there's no charge. The only currency God requires is obedience. It's faith, right? We have to have faith. Paul uses the term from faith to faith in, in his letter to the Romans. That simply means the system of faith produces personal faith. So the only currency that God requires is to allow the system of faith to produce my personal faith. Let's go back to Romans ten seventeen. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. My personal faith is produced by the system of faith. I can't gain my personal faith in God from anywhere else other than from His Word. He tells me what He wants, 
And I believe it. We're going to notice that in this very passage before us. So we see that these conditions are required through faith. You know, we sing a song that says, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's how it's done, isn't it? That's how it's accomplished. That's why Paul was able to say, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6.23. That goes right back to the price. What does the world charge? The world charges death. That's what sin charges. The wages of sin. See, wages are earned. We earn the wages of sin. We do things. Sin says, now you're owed death. That's the penalty for sin. But, on the other hand, God says, I'll give you salvation. It's a free gift. Attached to it is obedience. If you want it, here's here's what you have to do. The great invitation was an offer which leads to an opportunity. That's our second point. Leads to an opportunity. And that that opportunity is salvation, right? Now, within the context of Isaiah, Israel was spending herself. She was exhausting herself in trying to earn her salvation through keeping the law. She was... She was offering all these sacrifices, burning all this incense, doing all of these things and all of these traditions, trying to keep up with what Moses had set forth. And what was it doing? Well, she was being faithful under that law, but how much salvation was she gaining? Well, she had to be faithful under that law, but that law was never designed to take sin away. It was simply a precursor to what was to come. If if the Messiah had never come, that law could never save. It was never designed to do that. So that quest was in vain. Attempting to uh, attain justification before God by human goodness is never going to happen. That simply is a frustratingly impossible thing to do and it only compounds the human dilemma of guilt. We just simply cannot be good enough. We cannot do enough good things to cause our guilt to be removed. It took a new covenant to cause that to happen. So the only solution to satisfy the human soul was faith in a selfless act of a perfect atoning sacrifice. And that was the death of Christ. We had to have faith in that. Now that sacrifice was part of the system of faith, right? Now, that solution cannot be reasoned out. It cannot be explained by anything within the human experience. Because it is superhuman, right? It is beyond that of what a normal person was willing to do. What other person was willing to lay down his life? Jesus even made that statement. 
A good person may be willing to lay down his life for other good people. And we do see that in the world, don't we? We've seen that before. Good people will lay down their lives for other good people. How many good people have you seen who will be willing to lay down their lives for a world full of sorry people who want to kill them and want to kill their families and all of those things? I've never seen one other than the Christ. And it is supernatural that He was able to do that. Not that it was a miracle that He did it. He chose to do it. But His whole being in coming into the world was miraculous. Born of a virgin, the God-man, His choosing to leave heaven, all of that for these people. And He willingly did it. It can only be believed. Believed, of course, on the basis of historical verification and validation of its efficacy by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we have all of that. We have the evidence that resurrection is the only fact making the cross of Christ, His atoning death, believable. And we have the evidence. And we can see it. It's there for us. And that is predicated and predicted in Isaiah 53. This exhortation is for Israel, the true believers, to focus their attention on the promises of God so they may have salvation by grace. They needed to pay attention Isaiah was trying to grab their attention. All attempts to be saved in any other way would fail and did fail. Salvation is what brings satisfaction. It's that satisfaction and it's that contentment that the world wants and needs. It's that that type of satisfaction for which everyone searches. Those who receive God's invitation can allow, the writer says, their souls delight in fatness. Now this word fatness means abundance. God gives abundance, right? When God saves, He gives new life. Not only that, He gives a far better life. Notice what Jesus said, John 10, verse 10. He said, The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. He said, I come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. When He brings life, He brings life. When He saves, He saves to the uttermost. After having obeyed the gospel, Paul said a person becomes a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Something brand new, totally different than what he was before. As long as one remains faithful, that abundant life will remain. Never ceases. Now that doesn't mean that in this life we will always have abundance physically. He's talking spiritually. See, that's the, that's the satisfaction we're looking at. That's the, 
the, the void that we're feeling that makes a person feel complete. Within the, the great invitation, there is an offer, there is an opportunity. Now I want us to notice the obligation. That's our third and our final point. First, one must have something. The writer says you must have a thirst. Now that's a common human need, isn't there? The very first thing a person has to have in this life that is always first and foremost on your mind is air to breathe. If you don't have air, you're not worried about water. But if you have air to breathe, the first thing on your mind is something to drink. Not worried about food. You have to have water. Then you worry about food. Water is the first thing. You've got to have something to drink. It's a common human need. But we're talking about a spiritual need. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's part of the Sermon on the Mount, right? The Beatitudes. We have to have a spiritual thirst. You know, a person must recognize something is missing in their lives, in his or her life. They must recognize that. They must have a desire to fulfill and to fulfill it and to fill it with the appropriate things. That's what we were talking about, right? People are are dissatisfied. They're trying to fill that hole and that void with all the wrong things. And that may work for a while, but it never works completely. God cannot save a person who does not want to be saved. A person who does not recognize their need to be saved cannot be saved. See, that desire and that thirst must be quenched because a person needs it and wants it to be quenched in the right way. Fortunately for us, the Gentiles, the prophecy found in Isaiah 55 spoke to us as well. The prophet called upon Israel to give its attention to the promise of God and how he would fulfill that promise in the future with a brand new covenant. He wanted them to focus on the future. That covenant would not be like the old covenant. It would not be like that covenant that would become obsolete. They would transition from the old one of animal sacrifice, of all the traditions that Moses had handed down from Mount Sinai, into this brand new covenant that this new Messiah would would usher in in the Christian age. It would be a future covenant relationship that would be an everlasting relationship. wasn't going to end until time ended, right? That covenant would be uh, would not be like any other. Would not be like any other, and it would not become obsolete. Now, notice this. It would bring in, the writer says, the sure mercies of David. See, that's a promise of an eternal king. An eternal king to sit on the throne of David and rule. And that's happening right now. Our eternal king is ruling at this very moment at the right hand of the Father, looking down upon His kingdom at the present time. When we, when we have faith in that, when we have obeyed the gospel, and when we look back over the system of faith, and we understand what that is, of faith and repentance, confession, immersion in water, and faithful living, 
we have a legitimate guiltlessness that comes with that. That's a great blessing in and of itself. Peter explained that when he said this. Notice 1 Peter 3.21. The like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only is baptism the final step into into salvation, into contentment, but it gives you that guiltlessness, that good conscience that you could never find under that old covenant. See, that came back every single year. And it had to be dealt with every single year. You couldn't get the monkey off your back in, in essence, right? You had to always go back. There is also the obligation on the part of the individual, the writer said, to hear. See, God's not going to make us obey the gospel. He's not going to run us down. He's not even going to make us hear His plan. He's not going to do it. He's not going to make any person listen. Four times in the passage... God tells Israel to hear His message. He says, Ho, hearken diligently, incline your ear, hear. If they would hear, they could go to Him. They could get what they needed for their soul's salvation. Four times He called them to come to Him. Once He invited them to come and eat. That's part of the provisions. God will take care of us. You see, one must look upon this whole chapter of Isaiah as messianic. Therefore, the hymn of 55 verse 4 is the Messiah, the servant, who has been given as the leader and the prince of His people. He is both king and prophet. Now, in chapter 53, the servant makes intercession, so he becomes the Messiah priest. That makes him both prophet, priest, and king. He would secure God's covenant for all the people of the world. See, that's good news for us, isn't it? And and He would call all the people into a covenant relationship with God through the great invitation through His system of faith. See, and all we have to do is come through that. We talked about how to do that. There's a story told of of a lady walking in the mountains and she finds this precious stone. And she comes across this fellow who had been lost and walking in the mountains and he had been starving and he comes upon her and and he asks her for some food. She says, yeah, I'll give you some food. And she opens her bag and he looks into the bag and he sees some food and he sees this precious stone and he says, let me have the stone. And she says, take the stone. He knows if he takes the stone that, that it will uh, give him all he needs for the rest of his life. So he reaches in, he takes the stone and and he leaves and about three days later, he, he finds his way back to the woman and he says, You know, I was thinking about it and, and I took the stone and, and then I began to contemplate that you had something far greater than the stone. I want what you've got. You, you had a joy and a contentment in your life that allowed me to have that stone because you had true contentment. That's what I want. Well, we can have true contentment. We don't find it in the things of this world. We find it only in Christ Jesus. Isaiah talked about that coming Messiah and that coming covenant. And he offers it to us through the great invitation. 
If you're here today and you need to answer that invitation, do that. Whether in initial obedience or coming back as a child of God through prayer and repentance, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.